Welcome to the Afghanistan Project Podcast. I'm Beth Bailey here with my co-host, Michael Cook. And today we're excited to bring on Jill Marie Bussey, an immigration attorney with 26 years of experience. She is the Director for Public Policy for Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service and advocates for refugees and asylees to include Afghans who've reached the U.S. Jill Marie, we're really excited to have you on today to talk about your early work with Afghan SIV applicants and Afghans who were lucky enough to be um, brought to the U.S. in those early days after the withdrawal. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, we'd love to let you start out by talking about what drew you to the field of, of immigration. Um, what did you know that you wanted to do that when you started practicing law or was that something that you fell into later? Yeah, it's been an interesting ride. Um, I, uh, graduated from American university, um, many years ago and uh, started out as a paralegal, knowing that I wanted to go to law school. And I worked in this shared office environment where there were attorneys who were doing all kinds of things, criminal defense and insurance stuff and malpractice. And I met this attorney who happened to be setting up a new practice of immigration law and asked me to join her as a paralegal. And that's how I, I got my first um, exposure to immigration law. Um, when I decided to go to law school, I really thought I was going to get out of immigration. I had been um, in the industry for well over five years. By the time I went to law school, um, I thought I was going to go help nonprofit businesses form in the Baltimore area and help community-based uh, organizations form um, and uh, do the great work, serve their missions. And um, got pulled back into immigration as soon as I got out of law school and practiced uh, for a business immigration practice for many years. Um, and I had a career shift, if you will, uh, really, truly, I believe a calling uh, to come out of uh, immigration practice and up to the national level advocacy, um, federal level advocacy when uh, the Obama administration announced the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Um, I made a complete career shift and went into nonprofit service at that point, very much a calling. Um, and I haven't looked back. I, I feel like um, it's an opportunity to take my knowledge and experience as an immigration attorney and kind of make change for the greater good, break down the systems that aren't working, uh, build programs that will work to serve individuals, to see human dignity and honor the rights of individuals. So it's been um, an interesting career. And it's such an interesting time too. I, you know, Michael and I, we've really focused on Afghans who are in Afghanistan in this podcast, I feel like. And uh, I have been diving personally into this just for the last two weeks and finding out things like that there's a 2.5 million backlog um, of people in the asylum system waiting on a court date, things like that. Just, it's incredible um, how much work is needed on this front. So it's great to have people who are really passionate doing that very difficult work. Um, when did Afghanistan start popping off? It's a, probably a bad term, but when did uh, Afghans, Afghan causes start kind of coming onto your radar? Um, well, I'll, there's a backstory to this, but I'll, I'll start professionally, um, personal backstory, I'll say. Um, I started uh, with the Lutheran Immigration Refugee Service in 
March of 2021. So I started a new job at LIRS. I was formerly uh, working with the Catholic Legal Immigration Network, um, both amazing organizations with great missions. And um, as soon as I came into LIRS, it was just a couple weeks later that the Biden administration had uh, made the announcement confirming the, with the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. As a major resettlement organization, we don't just resettle refugees, we resettle SIVs too. They're part of uh, a tremendous amount of the work that we do in resettlement and um, our resettlement partners and uh, our leadership at, at LIRS became immediately concerned that individuals who were in this pipeline, in this backlog, we, we had been exposed to the backlog in the SIV pro program. We were very concerned that they wouldn't make it out in time. Um, I was born in 1973, um, so that'll date me. Um, and uh, I, I carry the history of my father, who um, was a Marine uh, uh, in the 60s, um, and sort of the history of Vietnam and understanding um, what uh, what happened at the, the fall of Saigon and how we had evacuated indi individuals um, at that time. We carried that that knowledge forward and made some really precise recommendations to the Biden administration about what we wanted to um, evacuate and provide pathways of protection for not just the allies who had served our mission, but for people who had aided in the democratization, um, the, the efforts in Afghanistan. Uh, we were one of the only resettlement agency, we were the only resettlement agency at that time to join with other partners like Veterans for American Ideals and um, the International Refugee Assistance Project, uh, the Association for Wartime Allies, um, in forming a coalition called the Evacuate Our Allies Coalition that put forward very sternly, very forcefully recommendations to the Biden administration about what a thoughtful and thorough evacuation uh, would look like and how protection pathways should be opened for individuals. At that time, we didn't, um, we had no idea how quickly Kabul would fall to the Taliban, but it seemed like it would happen eventually. Um, so it was um, in July of 2021 that the coalition held a, a major rally in front of the, the White House and called on the Biden administration very publicly to, um, to, to start the evacuation. So the writing on the wall was there for many of us um, and many of us who understood the history of post-war time evacuation that uh, urgent action was needed. Mm -hmm. Did you get any feedback from the White House? Uh, we did, um, you know, mainly it didn't seem that the urgency was, um, was shared, uh, and very much that, um, optics were of concern to the administration. Mm -hmm. And what optics do you, would you say that they were concerned about? Um, I would say that mainly they were concerned about what uh, an evacuation would signal. That they would, sure, that makes sense. What, how, when did that shift at any point, their concern that you saw, or did it not? 
Um, I'll, I'll say that the month of, or the summer months of 2021 were frustrating for many of us. Um, we stepped up our very normally in advocacy, especially I do executive level advocacy, which is pointed at the White House or or uh, federal level agencies. So normally we're we're not very vocal in our advocacy. We're generally very surgical in our advocacy, and um, I think the the uh, the example that we had a public rally in front of the White House demonstrates our frustration level at that time. Um, yeah, but it was even when we heard that there would be an evacuation, it just didn't seem to happen fast enough. Um, and of course, uh, we had been, as a resettlement partner, we were in coordination with the State Department in terms of uh, any evacuees that would be coming. The first group, of course, were SIVs, individuals who were at the very, very, very late stage of their special immigrant visa processing. Um, they came to Fort Lee. This is before Operation Allies Welcome was even um, an operation, a functional operation. Um, and that was really mainly uh, facilitated by State Department charter flights into the United States. Being an immigration attorney, I was so honored to go to Fort Lee and be cleared and you know, as a as a volunteer, so I was wearing a different hat. I was not. This was not in my capacity at LIRS. This was in my capacity as a volunteer attorney. That I got to meet some of the very first evacuees who came to Fort Lee, and their families, and thank them for their service, um, sharing gratitude that they were in the United States safely, and um, I was able to provide uh, legal services to these families um, who were unfortunately just at the edge of getting their visa, which would have allowed them to enter the United States as green card holders. But unfortunately, um, you know, obviously the embassy had to retrograde and it was not going to happen that they were going to get their visas. So unfortunately, I had to bear that bad news. Um, that was That was difficult. That was very challenging to have to to tell them the bad news, um, but they were going to get their green cards. It was just going to be a wait. I also had to share with them the, the bad news that they would not be reunited with their family anytime soon. And so it was as much of an honor. It was, um, it was hard. It was difficult work. Um, certainly not the pain that they were feeling, of course, but um, it was, it was challenging work. It sounds like it was incredibly emotional. I mean, I can hear it in your voice. And I wonder when you talk about their family and that they wouldn't be able to reunify with their family, you're talking about their more because in the Afghan culture, family right. is so much more than your mother and your father. So are we talking about those direct relatives or are we talking about Both. everyone? Okay, right. So, so one of the first men um, that I served um, had made it to the United States with his wife and children. Um, but his brother was also an SIV applicant. He was not as far along as he was in the SIV process. And his brother was apparently like a spitting image of him. They were very, you know, they looked a lot alike. In fact, he showed me a picture and I was like, wow, they, they really, um, you can't tell that they're, you can tell they're, they're definitely brothers. And he was so worried that his brother was also fa facing persecution by the Taliban, um, was very concerned about the larger family. 
Um, he wanted his brother out and he wanted his parents to come with the brother. Um, and unfortunately, I had to tell him that that was not going to happen. And it was very hard to not have any answers um, in terms of timelines or any paths forward. I didn't even know when this gentleman would get his green card, let alone when he would be able to sponsor his family. And I certainly had no ability to determine the status of his brother's case and ability to get out of Afghanistan at that point. Right. And that was in early 21. August. Yeah. So at that time had the, the actual really chaotic evacuation process had not yet begun where people were flooding the gates of the airport. And so nobody really knew much of anything at that no, time. No, this is when we were all establishing those signal chats and the networks to help people. Um, yeah, these were the early days. And, um, you know, again, not wearing my LIRS hat, um, I served as a volunteer to Afghan EVAC um, and tried to work overnight many nights. In fact, pretty much every single night, um, as most people did to help people get on lists, uh, particularly SIVs, journalists, green card holders, even U.S. citizens who were trapped in Afghanistan. Um, so in addition to my day job as a, as a federal level advocate, you know, would work overnight um, every night, sending a list to um, State Department and the White House of individuals that we just had no idea whether they would make it to the, the flights or not. Wow. Do you have any idea of whether some of those people were able to get in or were you pretty much outside of that? Process? It was very transactional. I was getting the information um, from trusted resources, and but there are two stories that I know of that I personally um, was involved in. Um, one was really tough because it, it was a woman who was alone um, with her baby. Um, and she didn't make it out on the evacuation flights. And, uh, we had to tell her to get away from the airport. She was there at the time when the threat, uh, assessment was, the risk was really high for her. And I was able to, thankfully she had signal and I was able to share that information with her. They weren't getting it on the ground. Um, so I do believe that God helped me to, pass that information to her so that she could make informed choices for herself and her child. She went to safe house and later on she was, um, she made it out. How did she, uh, what type of visa did she get out on? Um, <laughs> she, she was, uh, uh, government assisted relocated. Um, okay. mm -hmm. so humanitarian, was she one of those few cases where, uh, various departments, sponsored her for like humanitarian parole specifically through USCIS or was she just, I've gotten way too in the weeds on this recently about the different kinds of parole that have been granted to people. Was she just paroled in through? She was paroled. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just through yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was also able to help a dad and a four-year-old um, who made it through the evacuation, but they just, they were having so much trouble with the immigration paperwork. Um, it was it was really challenging for them. Something had gone amiss in the four-year-old's immigration. Um, 
paperwork because she was brought to uh, the U.S. through State Department um, on her own um, and reunited with her father. So that was a really gratifying um, experience to be able to support her and her dad. In fact, when I was in Seattle just last week, I I heard that they're doing really well. I got to speak with the caseworker who um, helped resettle them and is supporting them. Uh, the dad's now working for one of our affiliates and is helping other Afghans. And that's like one of the things that I, I've seen throughout this entire thing. You know, a lot of this started as, you know, veterans and resettlement partners and people of faith and human rights activists, you know, trying to help Afghans. But what happened was when evacuees came, they wanted to, you know, pull their hand back and pull people in and help out. My, many of my own colleagues at LIRS, um, we had to s set up a temporary office in Northern Virginia because just the need, the demand was so high and um, we wanted to provide services um, ourselves there in order to support a, a local partner. And that, that office became 100% staffed by Afghans. Wow. That's cool. That's a great, that's a great story to hear, you know, that, that they're a, especially because, you know, you brought up family concerns and being, um, yeah. separated from family back home. And, and one thing that I have noticed about anyone who's talking about Afghan resettlement here is that it's really important to have community. Oh, and absolutely. So they've created this new community. That's really special. Yeah. Uh, you also brought up uh, the the difficulty in the paperwork, which I'm glad you did, because, you know, even as a American English speaker, that paperwork is not easy. Right. So for an Afghan to be filling out, um, you know, countless documents, it's, it's very difficult. And I'm just curious what yeah. the other difficulties were that you saw for um, Afghans and what what challenges they were facing once they got here. I want to say, like, I, I've bucketed this before, like the, the buckets are categories of, of pain uh, points, right? Number one, immigration and understanding immigration status is, is like by far one of the most challenging things that Afghans who came through the evacuation and even those who didn't come through the evacuation um, experience. Our immigration system is incredibly complex. It is not user friendly. It is not suited for what we call pro se applicants, people representing themselves. Um, so it continues to be and the way, of course, people were brought through the evacuation on parole, which is just a temporary um, permission to enter and, and stay in the United States for up to two years. It's, uh, it's really difficult for people to understand that and navigate that if they lost a work permit, my goodness, just that could send you over the edge, right? And what most people don't understand is everything stems from the immigration status in the United States, right? So if you don't hold a lawful status in the United States, that um, you're not going to be able to access certain benefits in the United States, like Medicaid. For many Afghans who had been through so much trauma, um, individuals with chronic illness that had to to go untreated for many weeks, maybe maybe months, because they were in safe houses, they were in the midst of the evacuation, they were just not receiving the, the right care for, say, something as simple as diabetes here in the United States, right? If it goes untreated, it can become acute and a massive issue. So if you don't have access to health insurance, um, that's 
that's an incredible um, issue. If you don't have a work permit, then, you know, you can't work in the United States, but if you choose to work or have to work because you have no other choice, you, there can be significant penalties for that. A driver's license, a real ID compliant document so that you can travel across states, things like that. All of that stems uh, from the immigration, right? So immigration is, I know some people think of it as a luxury, but it's really, if you think about Maslow's <laughs> pyramid, it's really, a, I think, a basic need it's a human right and it, everything flows from it then the next thing i would say that people struggle with was housing finding housing in the united states is not easy for anyone um i live in a suburb of dc and affordable housing here is an impossibility um let alone affordable housing for sometimes very large families families who want to have intergenerational um you know uh, cohabitation. So finding appropriate housing was really a challenge for, as it is for most refugees, but it's particularly acute for large families like Afghans and Afghans, of course, who want to find community and a market that sells the food that they're used to and a place of worship where they can feel safe. So all of these um, came into, you know, became challenger, challenges for folks. Um, not really knowing what the path forward would be um, in terms of immigration status and access to, to uh, federal benefits, major challenge. And then I would just say the other thing that really weighs on a lot of the folks that we, treat, we uh, support is just not knowing when they're going to see their family again. It, it's just uh, taken a, a major toll on on everyone um i was just in seattle this week i mentioned at a support center uh for afghans it's a, a government um run uscis run support center but lots of service providers there i think it was over 100 service providers which is really cool so they had legal services providers they had folks who were providing mental uh, behavioral health services employment workforce training etc really great resource fair, but I met this 13 year old girl who, you know, she's lucky. Her dad's SIV. She made it out with her dad and her stepmom, but her mom is still in Afghanistan. And this, this young woman, this girl was, you know, she's in getting an education in the United States. She's having a lot of opportunities that other Afghan girls would not have, but in the end, she she wouldn't even look up and, and meet eye contact with us. When we were trying to sit with her, she wouldn't even take a candy. Um, we tried to meet her where she was at and we, we were able to help her, but the pain it was just so present uh, and not knowing when she would see her mom ever again. Um, I think it's, it's gonna, impact her ability to to move forward and be a successful student mm -hmm. and really take take advantage of the opportunities that are here in the United States for her. Yeah. Yeah. I know family separation has been a huge one and it doesn't feel like we're making any progress on it. Um, yeah. For example, I have a friend who is I've talked about him on previous episodes, but he's currently serving in the United States Air Force. He's an American citizen. 
and his mother, his sister and grandmother are still stuck and don't have a path to get here. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I know his, his mother technically does, but you know, his sister's young and his grandmother's old and she's the only caretaker. So she's not going to leave them. Right. So the fact that we can't help out, a you know, active duty us airmen is just crazy to me. So it doesn't give me much hope for everyone else either. No. And when you think about, you know, that young girl, her mother is in such a heinous set of circumstances as an Afghan woman. It's not just, I am separated from my mother. It's, you know, her mother, the number of things that she can do in, yeah. in Afghanistan is, is so small. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that that adds to the concerns and to every Afghan who came here, who was an SIV candidate or who worked as a, a journalist or a prosecutor and was able to get out you know, they have family and friends back home and they may be known as family and friends of somebody who supported the previous government. And that's a mm -hmm. huge, I have a contact who uh, had managed to escape from Afghanistan and uh, it made the news. His brother was murdered because um, they, the Taliban had said, hey, send your brother back. He needs to come back here. And he did not come back from the country where he had escaped. And so the Taliban murdered his brother. And yeah. those kinds of things are, I think we forget sometimes in the larger world, what kind of um, havoc is being wrought inside of Afghanistan, especially yeah. as certain people are talking about how we need to um, have dialogue with the Taliban who are doing these heinous things to their people. But uh, I digress. I wanted to ask you about gaining asylum. So all of the people who came over during Operation Allies Welcome um, were supposed to have access to asylum. They were supposed to be able to file for asylum, in my understanding, and have expedited, expedited processing of their asylum claims. Have you all seen that happening, that that, that mm -hmm. asylum process has been done in the 150 days that it was promised to be done within? Right. So because Congress has failed to act and provide an Afghan Adjustment Act so far, um, it's been introduced and reintroduced, um, which it would provide a, a much more streamlined process for individuals to access a, a lawful permanent residency here in the United States. Because they failed to act, uh, Afghans who came on parole through the evacuation or elsewise have the current tools in the toolkit to, to access lawful permanent residency. So if they're SIV eligible, they can try that gauntlet and go through the gauntlet of trying to get a chief admission approval, which is really challenging, as you all know. Um, so that's, that's a hard path. Um, if they're able to achieve chief of mission approval, then the process for ask, asking for adjustment of status to a green card is relatively straightforward um, as long as uh, you know they haven't triggered some of the bars uh, to lawful permanent residency in the United States. So there have been a lot of people who have. They were already kind of in the SIV pop pipeline. And so they are continuing to pursue their SIV from within the United States, which is good. Um, and then for those who don't qualify for SIV or also wish to pursue asylum in addition to SIV, which is 
thought, I think thoughtful for a lot of people, um, then they can, they can apply for what's called affirmative asylum. And there's two types of asylum, one where you're in immigration court and you have to defend yourself from being removed from the United States. And so it's considered, it's a defense to removal. Um, or affirmative asylum is by uh, proactively sort of filing uh, an application with USC Citizenship and Immigration Service. And uh, that's where most evacuees would be. Um, that's the path that they would, they would be following if they um, were seeking asylum. Now, some people are going to have trouble seeking asylum in the United States, especially uh, some of the folks that I even, I feel like I contributed this to, to a certain degree, but people had to make hard choices in order to make through 22 Taliban checkpoints to get to HKIA, they had to burn everything that, that demonstrated that the Taliban was worth after them and why, right? So they, they burned their documents. They destroyed the evidence to show that they would be persecuted. So even though Afghans evacuees were provided a streamlined process, a more expedited process for asylum, because Congress did provide that. Um, many are having issues accessing asylum because they are, are challenged in demonstrating, you know, presenting the evidence um, that they actually were persecuted. So that's a barrier. It's a major challenge for folks. And that's, uh, and then some people are not going to it's not going to be um, the best choice to seek asylum because, um, uh, again, certain uh, bars of admission that may apply to them that uh, would make it so that um, asylum is, is probably not a very good choice. And this is the delta, right? If you don't qualify for one of these sponsored pathways, right, asylum or family-based uh, immigration or employment-based immigration or SIV, there's going to be a delta. There, there is a population of evacuees who came through the United States who don't qualify for any of these um, processes. And so, where, what is their future? Right? We talk about like the Afghan um, women's tactical units. You know, they they don't qualify for SIV because they worked for the Afghan government. Um, they were they were with the Afghan military. So. Um, they don't qualify for SIV. And again, they probably, many of them, I've met uh, many who had to destroy all evidence. Um, so their, their, as well as their training, military training may trigger some of these bars to, um, to admission as a lawful permanent resident for them if they pursue asylum. So we, we, need, we need to cover the Delta. We need to give folks a, an option uh, for for maintaining their status here in the in the United States, and that is what the Afghan Adjustment Act would do is Indeed. cover those populations. And what about if there's someone? Because I'm sure it's not just those populations. There's probably just some small amount of outliers. Would everyone be able to qualify? Anyone who came over on Operation Allies Welcome, or yeah. would it just okay? Yeah, I think that's an important thing to do, and it's. Um, in, in the meantime, all we're doing is we've, we've done re-parole, which could you, for our listeners who haven't maybe seen the Biden administration's announcement about re-parole, could you talk about what the current situation is for someone who came over in August, September, October 2021, and their two years of parole are coming to an end? 
Yeah. So I, I'm blessed every single day. I work with these amazing women, um, Halal Musumi and Susanna Cunningham at Lutheran Immigration Refugee Service, and then other partners in our coalition, evacuate our allies. They, they, um, really lead the legislative efforts seeking for the, uh, Afghan Adjustment Act, but also other legislative initiatives and appropriations to support Afghans who have come through the evacuation and ensure that those who were left behind have, a, you know, a, a meaningful pathway. Um, so I focus mainly on administrative advocacy. Like I said um, before, I, I normally work with the White House and the, the other agencies. When we knew that the Afghan Adjustment Act was not going to come in time um, last year, we started working um, on an ask of the administration to extend or extend parole protections for individuals who came through the evacuation in order to give them peace of mind that, you know, that they could have more time to find legal help to, to get them through the process. Many people who are going through asylum, they're on long waiting lists. Um, or having to pay private attorneys, like long waiting lists for nonprofit um, services, pro bono or low bono services, or they're trying to secure funding to, to pay for a private attorney to represent them. So people needed more time. Let's just put it that way. Uh, so we put forward a very thoughtful, thorough request of the administration on um, extending protections, what that would look like, um, Again, as I said before, everything stems from immigration status. So we were thoughtful to also include the extension of um, access to federal benefits like nutritional support for kiddos and um, health, you know, medical and health and coverage, et cetera. Um, but also under uh, Congress has provided some uh, reimbursement for legal services for Afghan evacuees, so maintaining that status so that they can continue to pursue the lawful pathway to stay here, right? And they can access affordable legal services. So thankfully, um, the Biden administration did uh, announce um, this spring um, new processes, very streamlined processes for individuals to seek uh, either affirmatively a re-parole, which is a new two-year period of parole, or if they had already applied for asylum or lawful permanent residency, say through the SIV program or through a family sponsorship, then they would be automatically reviewed by the government for a potential extension of the parole. Unfortunately, those announcements came pretty late, later than we wanted, right? We really were hoping they would come earlier in the year. And so it's kind of on the brink for, for folks. It's really created a lot more mental stress and strain than it needed to for Afghans who have now secured jobs that they like and are sending remittances to family abroad, wherever they may be. They may be the sole financial support of someone who's depending upon them in order to eat. Um, or stay in Pakistan um, where they can't work, right? So, you know, it's it's not just a matter of self-sustaining, it's it's supporting family members. Um, so yeah, we, we unfortunately, it was um, not at the timing we would have wanted, uh, but the Biden administration has extended 
essentially offered new processes so that people can either, you know, apply for a new parole period or get another uh, extension and work authorization. Um, it's unfortunate, though, because I just see the stress that people are enduring with just a couple weeks left of their parole. They haven't received a um, decision from the government yet, and that can weigh on on folks. Their yeah. employers are bugging them for paperwork and they don't have it. So it's just really super stressful. Is there any action needed from um, Afghans to qualify for a re-parole or does it happen automatically? Yeah. So for those who already have a pending asylum case or a pending what's called an adjustment of status application, the form number is form I-485. If they already have a case with the government that is pending and being processed, they don't have to do anything uh, but make sure that they have made sure that their address is up to date so that they can receive the, the information um, and documentation from the government. Um, for those who have not yet had the chance to apply for asylum or don't qualify for lawful permanent residency through adjustment of status, they have to proactively, they're gonna have to take action and seek re-parole through a new streamlined process, uh, which is available online. And um, they can file by paper. If they can file online, I really urge them to try to do that because it helps. it's set up to help avoid errors, which then can delay the case processing. So if they can, I really you know, urge folks to try to apply online if they can. Yeah, I've heard that that is the concern is that people will fall through the cracks because the ones who are not going to be automatically enrolled may not be aware. And obviously the timing concerns that you mentioned are, you know, the, the uncertainty. There's been so much uncertainty for Afghans yeah. and it is really destabilizing. And I, I brought up Maslow's hierarchy talking about that just the other day because yeah. it is, it's a very central thing to just be able to uh, feel secure in your environment. Um, you know, we, we talked briefly, or you mentioned briefly, um, punitive asylum. And so I would really like to talk about the, because now we're seeing many Afghans who've come across our Southern border right. um, because the processing rates for things like, well, there has been really no processing of humanitarian parole um, applications. Uh, the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program has been, uh, hmm, I, I don't even know what to call it because you can't find any information about it anywhere um, as to how many people have actually been processed in the last two years. We still have 152,000 SIV applications open in Afghanistan, just primary applicants only. And so all of these Afghans have been really in a, a state of limbo, and that's led to an influx of Afghans using Brazil and humanitarian visas to come up through the Darien Gap and take on a very, very, very dangerous journey. Um, many, I know of some who have paid cartels to bring them up to Mexico, and, and so they're trying to access the U.S. through the southern border. And can you talk about how asylum works for those individuals and what the differences are for, you know, what they can expect in the U.S. compared to someone who did come over um, through Operation Allies Welcome? Well, first and foremost, asylum at the southern border doesn't really work for many people. 
let's be clear. The system has been broken for a really long time and it needs to be fixed. Um, it is particularly challenging for an individual who's not coming from a traditional population that comes to the southern border because of regional closeness or re regional proximity to, to navigate the semblance of a system that we have, right? So, for example, the Biden administration has this new policy that if you want to apply for asylum at the border, which is the only place to apply for asylum, let's be clear, you can't apply from Brazil. You actually have to come to U.S. soil to uh, um, apply for asylum. But the Biden administration has this app, app mobile on the mobile phone. It's called CBP-1. So folks have to ask for an appointment to save their lives, but that app is not available in Dario Pashto. It's only available in English and Spanish, right? So very few Afghans have been able to navigate and be able to go through that preferred process under the, the Biden administration. Um, yeah, so that's... That's the Biden administration's carrot and stick approach is if you use the app, then you may be eligible for parole, but you will also be put in removal proceedings and have to defend yourself in immigration court. And that's where you're filing uh, asylum defensively. So just to be clear, the folks who come through the southern border, when you apply for asylum, you're, you're in removal proceedings, you're in a defensive posture, you're not qualifying for that fast track 150 day asylum process that Congress provided because that was only for evacuees. Your case is going to be added to the millions of cases that are already in the immigration court backlog. Um, they're not going to prioritize Afghans over anyone else. Um, the courts are the courts um, and navigating court by themselves is really, really challenging. Also, because they are evacuees or not evacuees, if you're coming through the southern border, you're not going to qualify for those federal mainstream benefits that are initially those stabilizing benefits, right? That's what I talked about, the nutritional programs, the um, health and insurance, uh, the legal services uh, reimbursement to a degree, the, the immediate cash assistance that Afghans who came through the evacuation would receive or SIVs would receive. They're not going to get any of that. That's that's how most asylum seekers, uh, all asylum seekers who come through the southern border, that's how they're they're treated here in the United States. So they're just entering, you know, a, what I call general pop. <laughs> um, and it's it's really hard when you're an Afghan new arrival who, through circumstance, you know, had to save your life. However, you did. You come through the southern border, and you're friend and neighbor down the street may have come through the evacuation and received some support and services through resettlement, but now you're in a very different position and you're not going to receive any of those services. Um, it, it can be, a, and I think a lot of people that I've met with who have come through the Southern border don't really understand that. They're not even eligible to work most of the time, right? Wow. So you have to, for most people, if they're not getting that app, if they're not getting on the CBP-1 app and they're not going through that, the preferred process by the Biden administration, most of the time they're just going to get what's called a notice to appear, um, which 
is essentially their charging document is telling them you're going to go to court and uh, they won't be paroled into the United States, which means they're not eligible for work permit uh, work permit until 150 days after they have filed their asylum c- claim. So they have to find an attorney to re- to defend them in removal proceedings, which is pretty hard, or try to go it alone and then wait 150 days in- after that. And then they can file for a work permit, which will be processed very slowly by uh, the immigration service. So they don't have the the right to work or access to work permits to sustain themselves. It is our our defensive asylum system is very punitive in that way. It's really hard to imagine. And I know that many of the people who've chosen that route are not doing it, you know, because they think that this is you know, I just want to get to the United States because it's this great land of milk and honey. They're doing it because they don't want to die. Right. They don't want the Taliban to kill them uh, and their children. Or, you know, I've mentioned this before. It doesn't, you don't hear about it often, but I saw one set of young girls who had their hands cut off because of their father's work. Um, You know, these kinds of things are not, they are not totally aberrant in Afghanistan under the Taliban. Um, and so they're not fleeing f- for some kind of promise of money is my point. And mm-hmm. I just, I'm concerned, especially, you know, for anyone who may, might get a judge, because from my understanding, some judges are very lenient and they give, you know, they're very happy to let um, immigrants get asylum is my understanding. And then some are not and don't, you know, they, they say no to most of the cases that come across their desk. And so I, I am concerned that Afghans will be deported, but I don't, do you think that that's something that could happen um, with Afghans who've come across the Southern border if they get a judge who just doesn't understand what they're facing if they're returned? Yeah. I mean, I, I, this is the stuff I was about to say a curse word. This is the stuff that keeps me up at night, right? Like, because we failed to provide meaningful protection pathways for Afghans, um, I met a gentleman who was a, a journalist. He was a media, like a te- television personality in Afghanistan who made it to Brazil. His wife is battling breast cancer. I relate. I'm a breast cancer survivor. And then they're essentially getting kicked out of Brazil, right? Because he hasn't learned Portuguese he has no way of really sustaining himself and his family um, in Brazil. So he made it, he came through the southern border, left his w- wife, who's battling cancer, with the young ones in Brazil um, to try to access uh, protection here in the United States. I can't tell you how many stories I've seen a lot of folks who have come through the southern border. Some of them are SIV eligible. They're waiting for COM approval. Some have even received their COM approval, but they just cannot stay in Mexico any longer or Brazil any longer because their visas are no longer good or they can't uh, they can't sustain themselves, right? They can't work and um, live meaningfully there, right? So it's just because we have failed right? To provide protection to people. People will do whatever they need to do to save their lives. They're going to come however they can come. And they're coming to reunify with family. 
They're coming to save their lives. They're coming to access the promises that were, that were made to them. Um, and I, I just hope that the courts will understand that. But the truth is, as you mentioned, Beth, there are a lot of immigration courts that are really hard to navigate and have a very high denial rate. Um, and unfortunately, when I map where some Afghans are going and resettling in the United States, unfortunately, some of where they're going is where the most unfriendly courts are. And so I wish I could tell people, <laughs> like, if you're going to come this way, choose a jurisdiction that is at least going to be a little bit more favorable to you. But like, how the heck did we get to folks, right? How do we share that message? And forum shopping is not something that you really want to get involved in. But like, I wish we could, we could do it better. I, I can say that one of the things as an administrative advocacy, you know, expert, we are, re we have requested that the Biden administration extend and redesignate temporary protected status for Afghans who have made it to the United States, who are already here in the United States. If that, if the Biden administration makes that choice, and they just did this for Ukraine on Friday, the 18th, and Sudan on the 18th, if they make that choice, and they have to make that decision in about a month uh, of whether they're going to extend and or redesignate TPS, if they do that, then they may be able to, Afghans who have come through the southern border may be able to apply for uh, temporary protected status, which would enable them to access a, a work permit. Um, and it also gives them a little bit more breathing room in terms of finding legal services to help them through that asylum case. It will also help people who have been put in detention to get out of detention and again, meaningfully access legal services and, and the, the legal counsel that they need to help them through those cases. By and large, if you are, if you are represented in immigration court, you're always going to have much better outcome. So we want folks to be able to access um, counsel and um, have the best shot that they can here. I guess I would have one final question. So I had not personally heard of any Afghans who had been put into detention facilities when crossing. How often has that happened, would you say? Um, it's an alarmingly happening and people are being detained for longer periods of time. Um, so we work with a partner um, in the coalition project on our ANAR, and they are providing services. They're a small organization, but they, man, are they mighty. Um, and they're providing um, some legal counsel and ass assistance to individuals who have been detained, Afghans who have been detained. They're imminent in immigration detention, which is not a good place to be if you're trying to prepare an asylum case. So um, Project Honor is one of our amazing partners who's working with the detained population. So is uh, Human Rights First. Um, but again, this is, it's, it's an ongoing challenge for anyone who comes through the southern border, but it becomes more difficult when people are put into detention in places like Louisiana, really remote places where we can't get lawyers to them to help them. And I, I guess I, I actually have one more comment, and that would be that when I've asked CBP how many people are coming across and how many of them came with a humanitarian parole application filed, a some kind of 
um, P1, P2 stat or your application or SIV eligibility, they can't answer me because they don't know. They don't and know. That's the thing is that you know, I, I worked on Afghanistan. I studied and researched Afghanistan from 2008. And one of the early problems, not early, by that point we were eight, you know, seven, eight years in. But one of the problems was that there was so much stove piping and, you know, agencies didn't talk to one another. And so efforts were getting left behind. Efforts were getting duplicated. It's the same thing that's happening right now where, you know, if, if we don't know because USCIS knows if somebody has a humanitarian parole application, but Department of State would know if they have a P1 or P2 application, like these things should be understood I feel like, and it, and kind of streamlined where we we can look at somebody and know, oh yeah, we know who you are. We know yeah. what you did and we never did that. And it's a problem in SIV. It's a problem. It's a huge problem. And it's not fair that, uh, that Afghans are being so adversely impacted when we did make promises to them. And we made promises to every Afghan who supported us in right. Afghanistan. And so right. it's really disappointing that here we are two years out and this is the situation that um, even yeah. even the Afghans who were lucky enough to come in off those flights. I'm very grateful that, you know, LIRS is doing that work and asking for re-parole and that's so important. But I wish that we had, that someone from higher up had um, made some bigger changes prior to now. Yeah, that definitely crosses a lot of administrations um, in yes. terms of the uh, dysfunction. What One of the things that you just said about the, the interagency collaboration or lack thereof that deserves um, Afghans, I think it would be addressed. Like the Afghan Adjustment Act, I know some people are just thinking about the green card aspect of that legislation, but it would also... Um, establish an interagency task force that would force the collaboration of these agencies that are trying at a what I would call the careers level, right? The the folks who are on the ground every single day trying to to just slog through the the work and the applications. But we need a higher level macro manager who's going to force data sharing. There should be screening at the border, in my opinion. It's one of our asks that, you know, if you encounter an Afghan who's coming through the southern border, most of them, if they're SIV, <laughs> they're going to have it on their phone, right? They're going to be like, yo, I got my comma approval. They can say comma approval if they can't say anything. Or if they're P2 referred, they have it on their phone, right? They have the evidence. Why can't we screen these folks and process them hum humanely and issue them humanitarian parole so that they can maintain or they can continue the process um, without having to be in that defensive posture and, you know, with their hands tied behind their back, essentially. Right. So I really hope that, you know, the, the AAA, the Afghan Adjustment Act was reintroduced in Congress. Um, there's Congress is in recess in August right now, but hopefully in September, folks will come back ready to pass the National Defense Authorization Act and um, fund our government other ways. And uh, hopefully we'll see that AAA uh, attached to one of these must uh, pass funding bills and give people the 
relief that they need to give the government partners the relief they need. Believe me, all this backlog of asylum cases is because they're they're laborious cases. Like let's let's smooth out the system, smooth out the pipeline, so then we can we can start focusing more on the people who are left behind and get them here too, right? Let's let's get people through this process and get these families reunified and and make good on our promise for crying out loud. Yes. Amen. 100%. Well, Jill Marie, it was so great to have you. I feel like I have had a master's course in all of these really important topics. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for all that you've done to raise awareness. It's, it's so incredibly important. Well, and I'm hoping too that some people who are listening tonight or whenever they listen to this might also get some help and know where to go or, or how they can, you know, find access to things that they need. So uh, before we close, I want to make a note. Uh, again, we don't have a story from an Afghan for tonight and it hurts my heart. I'm sure, Michael, you feel exactly the same way. Uh, so for all the Afghan listeners out there, we want to hear your stories. You know, it's, it's one thing for us to stand up here and talk about the Afghan experience. It is an entirely different um, thing to have Afghan voices on the podcast. So please send your stories, send your poetry, send short videos, whatever you want to do to our show address, which is the Afghanistan project podcast at gmail.com. And then thank you to all our listeners for sharing your time and supporting the people of Afghanistan, Tasha Kaur, and we hope to see you again soon.